What do you want out of life? What do you want later this afternoon after you leave here? When you go home tonight, during the night, when you wake up tomorrow morning? What you do not want is the telephone to ring and say that a loved one has been killed in an automobile accident. What you do not want is an IRS man to come by and say you're being audited. In short, you could apply that to every society, to every nation on the face of the earth, whether you're talking about peasants in Irkutsk in Russia, or Soviet Azerbaijan, or the people living under the shadow of dictatorships in Iran, or in Libya. Because all of us human beings, no matter our color, race, or creed, want security, freedom, peace, happiness, success, prosperity, a feeling of well-being and contentment, the most pressing issue confronting all of humankind today is, of course, one thing, world peace. What about Dallas and Fort Worth? Do we have peace in this region? There are many people in this region who are very, very concerned about nuclear plants, both those finished and under construction. Many, many of the minorities in this region feel completely disenfranchised and are very, very upset over certain civil policies, especially the police force. I do not believe that an evening goes by, but while I'm sitting watching evening news from some of the Dallas channels over in Tyler, Texas, and hearing of the latest shootout involving a police officer. We saw the funeral the other day when within a few miles of where we are right now, a young officer, perhaps graduated from high school, probably dragged off to church all of his life, good, decent young American boy, probably brought up with certain ideals and thought about right from wrong and decency and goodness and thought that because they got a great pension program and security and a reasonable good job and he didn't mind civil service and maybe he'd been in Vietnam and had a little taste of the military, so he joined the police force. And there was an itinerant, a street person, and he came upon this person acting in a very strange and perhaps a lawless fashion. An altercation ensued. The street person grasped his pistol. A group of passers-by, people standing there waiting for a bus, said, kill him, kill him, shoot him. And so the man shot him over and over again. And we saw the funeral. The day before yesterday, a young off-duty police officer here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area saw a robbery in progress tried to stop it, was shot three times, and later died. So you really don't have peace except in an illusion in your own little pocket of quiet. There are certain people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area who live in certain communities where you might say it is a quiet residential neighborhood, and they're very, very careful with their little peephole in the door, the many jingling keys in their pocket. Their very careful attention to not having too many deep black shrubs around their house, maybe exterior lighting, maybe bars around the door. If they're careful when they go to the 7-Eleven store late at night because they need milk and eggs for breakfast, and pause outside and look very attentively through the window to find out what's going on in there before they simply get out of their car and walk in because there may be a robbery in progress, they could live and get by in that very reasonable, middle-class, peaceful part of Dallas and Fort Worth, and they could say that they have a fairly peaceful existence. How do you define peace? Well, surely all those things I said we want of happiness, contentment, well-being, an absence of disease, an absence of financial and economic headaches, an absence of pain, of suffering, of worry and concern. Now, the people in Iran are very worried and concerned. 
about the Iraqis. And if they weren't at war with Iraq, they're very, very worried and concerned about the great Satan, you and me. As I've made the point to many startled American audiences, if it were possible, and some of the Khomeini's henchmen, or perhaps some of those in the employ of some of the other dictators in the world, would very happily, young women, beautiful young women, young teenage 17, 18, 19-year-old men, would love to walk into this room with M-16s and begin to kill everybody in sight, just like they did at Rome and Vienna. The little 11-year-old girl who was shot when she tried to struggle to her feet after having already received a bullet in the chest. Because there are people in this world who, because you are an American, hate your guts. Do you really realize that? Do you realize that you are in a minority, whether you are black or of Indian extraction or oriental or white Caucasian, as they say? That because you are an American, there are many, many nations in this world who cannot really be at peace so long as we exist. The Jordanians, the Egyptians, the Lebanese, the Iraqis, the Iranians, the Saudi Arabians, the Kuwaitis, the people of the United Arab Emirates, the people of Dubai and Bahrain and Abu Dhabi cannot be at peace as long as Israel exists. And they will not agree to Resolution 242, saying that the Israelis have a right of sovereignty and a right of territorial possession and a right to exist in their own free state in Israel because they do not give Israel that right. And to this day, the one sticking point between these two, PLO and any other group which represents Palestinian aspirations that prevents them from coming to the conference table to sit down and talk over their difficulties is the fact that the Palestinian Liberation Organization refuses to recognize the right of Jewish people in Israel even to exist, even to be, to live, and to enjoy life with their wives and husbands and children and grandchildren. The greatest pressing issue before the world today is world peace. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah, the 59th chapter, and see what God says about our chances for peace. In Isaiah 59, it says, Behold, the Eternal's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So there is something that gets between we human beings and the desire to alleviate our suffering and to solve our problems, get rid of our worries, and to have the success and contentment we desire. And that is like a bulwark, like a middle wall of partition, like some obstacle that prevents us from getting through to God. Very few of you in this room have seen a fabulous miracle. Some of you think you have. You've had other people tell you that's what you saw. But I'm talking about in your own body, your own life, your own mind, with your wife, your children, your husband, your own loved ones. Very few of you have seen great, wonderful, powerful acts of Almighty God. They do happen on a very rare occasion, once in a while. But nearly always you've got to be informed about that. Someone will come on television and say, Oh, the Lord is moving mightily here this evening. Why, it's marvelous the things the Lord is doing just now. Why, just the other day, Maudie Finkelbaum had that big wart removed from her thumb. Praise the Lord, because we all prayed for her. Praise Jesus. 
It's marvelous the things the Lord is doing just now. And I hear people talking about the things the Lord is doing. But did the Lord show up at Rome and Vienna and prevent the assassination squad? Did the Lord prevent the young teenagers with a truck laden with a bomb driving underneath the barracks of those hundreds of Marines in Lebanon? Did the Lord prevent the crash of the PSA jet when an idiot, demented character with a gun shot the crew and they rode it down for about eight seconds all the way from 30-some thousand feet and every human being ended up a little piece as big as a postage stamp in California? with those people screaming all the way down knowing what was going to come. Did the Lord stop that? Do I deny the Lord could have? Oh, no, don't get ahead of me. Not for a minute. Sure he could have. If he had made it his business, if he had wanted to, if he had decided to, did God prevent a single war that you know of? Has God prevented, even from the Middle Ages, people with the name of Christ on their lips or the two-edged sword decapitating Arabs of Islam because they were the infidels? Or has God prevented those same Arabs under the Seljuk Turks rampaging across Europe all the way to the gates of Vienna, spilling tens of thousands of Europeans' blood because they believed the Europeans were infidels and did not accept the true religion of the only true prophet of God, Muhammad? Which war has God stopped? Which war has he prevented? Which disease has he eradicated? Which graveyard has he emptied? I'm not saying he can't. I'm saying he can. And the time is coming, I believe, with all of my being. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. When he will empty the graveyards when a great resurrection is going to occur. Why not now? I'm leading up towards something that is going to be very difficult for some few of you to deal with just as the Jews during Jesus' time could not deal with it. Look what this chapter says. Your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, as Christ said. Yea, all have sinned. And as David said, there is none good, no, not one. And as Paul wrote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And as the Bible says, yea, let every man be found a liar, but let God be true. Your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies. What about our present host of would-be presidents? Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calls for justice, nor any pleads for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies, even if it is the party platform. They conceive mischief, and they bring forth sin, iniquity, lawlessness. They hatch poison snakes' eggs, cockatrices' eggs, and weave the spider's web. He that eats of their eggs dies, and that which is crushed breaks out into a viper. Their web shall not become garments, so that they spin and they weave like a spider, but it doesn't become something of usefulness with which to clothe themselves, but instead a web to ensnare them. Neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Question. Will the next president bring every group, whether great or small, every race, whether black or white, every American, what they want. Is the next man in the White House, whether it is Robertson, Gebhardt, Jackson, Dole, Hart, Dukakis, Bush, Babbitt, whoever it might be, is he going to do a better job than President Reagan did? How do you appraise the job President Reagan has done? I like President Reagan. It's hard not to like the person as a man. When he came in as governor of California and I lived out there, it was on the idea that he was not going to raise taxes. 
Taxes more than quintupled during his administration. California ended up deeper in debt with a larger budget deficit after a Reagan administration than in all of its history. When Mr. Reagan was running for all, I can admire the man. I said, if you as an American think that he can actually make Americans stronger, raise the salaries of our military people, attract a larger Air Force, Marine Corps, Army, and Navy, put greater numbers of ships to sea, modernize our defense, back the Russians off, make them come to the conference table, do all of these wonderful things he promises, and at the same time, not raise your taxes. Somebody, somewhere, is crazy. And so it is that the Reagan administration has piled up deficits more than equivalent to all those deficits piled up by every administration from George Washington to Harry Truman in just the few years he has been in office. And our government is drowning in a sea of red ink. And they set a law. Congress is able to pass law. They are a legislative body. So they pass a law called the debt limit. Beyond that limit, by law, you may not go. And in a few months, they've gone to that limit, and the government is broke. And if they don't have an emergency late-night, midnight meeting, and then pass a new law which supersedes the other law, which to raise the debt limit, they're out of business. Government employees, and they are the largest group of people in our country, government employs more people than anybody else by far, owns more land than anybody else by far, owes more money than anybody else by far, the government is broke. And for all practical purposes, our government is broke. Do you honestly believe that one of those men, Dole, Jackson, Gebhardt, Robertson, Hart, Dukakis, Bush, or Babbitt, has the answers? I could go to a Bush meeting. I could go to a Robertson caucus. I could go to a Dukakis campaign, and I could ask that question, and all the people out there would scream, Yes, we do! They're excited! They raise the banner. They go applauding off after these candidates. They get on the telephone. They get in their cars. They drive hundreds of miles. They travel by air and bus. And they go around, knock on doors, get the vote out. They're campaigning. They're activists. They're really working because they believe that their candidate, if they can just get him in there, is going to solve all the problems. And everybody is going to get far more of what they want. Isn't that amazing that for as, as long as I've been alive and I've been aware of the time when I was a boy, my grandfather said he wouldn't even think of voting for FDR. I remember when I was a kid running around wearing a Landon button. Anybody remember that far back? Some of you may because, you know, I'm only 58, but Landon was running against Roosevelt way back in Roosevelt's very first term. And I remember that very well. Of course, I remember listening on the radio from the BBC of the coronation of King George, Queen Elizabeth's father. And some of you don't know that I go back that far, but I do. And you know, from that time to this, every presidential election, the electorate has been so hopeful that each new wonderful champion who was going to be put into the White House would do exactly as he promised in the campaign and would solve all our problems. Remember when we went to the polls and soundly defeated Barry Goldwater because we were afraid he was going to get us into war in Vietnam, and we elected Johnson instead. Remember that? That was a negative vote. Millions of Americans negatively voted against Goldwater. They thought he was a hawk. Johnson would keep us out of a land war in Asia. I won't comment further. It says here, their feet run to evil, verse 7, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting, and destruction. Now, we wouldn't want to accuse government of wasting. 
wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. That's God telling you something most people don't want to believe. Most people believe that mankind really does know the way to peace. It's just that all these other groups, these special interest groups, to some people it's the Jews. It's a group of rotten Jews in some attic over in Brussels sitting on top of a big computer. They've got a conspiracy with the Chase Manhattan Bank and a lot of other people. And secretly, without you knowing it, they're really running the world. They're the people we've got to get rid of. Other people say the Jews aren't the Jews anyway. They're a different group of people. They're, they're some other ancient people that came from the steppes of Russia. Oh, people have got all kinds of theory about what the theories about what the problems really are. If we just get rid of all these other folks, and little business wants to get rid of big business, and big business wants to swallow up and absorb little business, and it just seems like there's nothing but the pulling and the tugging and the constant friction and the arguments, all of the racism, the anger, and the hatred between various vested and special interest groups, each of whom believe they know the answers, and if they could put their champion in the White House, presto, peace would break out all over the world, and everything would really be wonderful, and we would all get exactly what we want. These idealistic people who get out and campaign and knock on doorbells, or knock on doors and ring doorbells for some of these presidential hopefuls, you've got to give them one thing, they really do believe that. They believe it. They're almost fanatical. They're as much a true believer as Eric Hoffer wrote about in the religious sects and fraternities of this country. The way of peace they know not, says God. And the world says, yes, they do. They know the way to peace. It's just a matter of getting the right man into office, and we'll have peace. No. No, God basically says, just to give you a paraphrase of what the Bible tells us, that so long as man is possessed of human nature, we shall not know peace. Because human nature is avarice, cunning, duplicity, hypocrisy, vanity, ego, jealousy, selfishness, lust, greed. Human nature is all of those things. What do you suppose fuels the stock market? Two things, lust and greed. That's what fuels the economy. What is the motive which brings about entrepreneurship and private businesses? It is the competitive, the motive of competition, the motive of get, the motive of wanting to make money. You don't see very many people with a motive of wanting to produce, to contribute, to give, to serve, to help. Mostly it is the idea of wanting to take, to accumulate, to compile, to possess, to get. The new president who will be, we will know who he is very shortly, by late July, August, early September. The party conventions will be over. All the smoke and dust will have cleared. They will have gotten through with all the mudslinging and the name-calling. Robertson will no longer speculate that perhaps George Bush has some CIA agents that really tracked around and got the goods on swagger. We'll be through with all of this kind of blame-placing and hair-shirt-wearing and breast-pulling, hair-pulling and name-calling. And we will know who the two aspirants are with their vice presidential selections who are going to run and become the next president of the United States. And I actually, as I look at this list I read to you, Dole, Jackson, Gebhardt, Robertson, Hart, Dukakis, Bush, Babbitt. It sort of sends a chill up my back. Sort of makes me shudder in apprehension. 
I worry very much about some of the things Mr. Reagan has done. And I look at the incredible deficits he has compiled, and it scares me very seriously about the future of our nation. Because we are the world's greatest debtor. And it is shameful, with all of the programs I've done in the past about some of the debtor nations so-called, so you know, rearranging and defaulting not only on principle but on interest, such as nations like Brazil and Mexico that are absolute third-world poverty-stricken down the drain, endemic disease, squalor, poverty, maybe the annual income somewhere around $300 a year, just mind-boggling problems if you've ever been to those countries, especially down in Brazil and seen the ramshackle tumble-down shacks around the hillsides of Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo and some of those places where people live in disease and squalor like you can't even begin to believe. And so you, you sort of chide these nations for borrowing billions of dollars where an elite fraternity under a dictatorship with their cousins, uncles, and brothers are living like kings and they're absolutely filthy rich and the broad majority of all the struggling populaces out there are just wretchedly poor without the barest means of food, clothing, and shelter. And where the ancient guns versus butter issue prevails every single time, and every time, whether from Africa to Central and South America, whether in Noriega or somewhere in Haiti, like the former Doc Duvalier and their ilk, get their hands on the reins of government, butter suffers, guns, of course, obtain, and they spend all the billions that they borrow from the great industrialized West, whether it's West Germany, whether it's Japan or the United States, giving out billions of dollars in foreign aid, and they turn around and buy arms from France or from West Germany or us. And so they've got F-16 fighter planes, and they've got modern Abrams tanks, and they've got Forrestal-class destroyers. Some of these nations have actually got super-sophisticated weapons delivered to their own arsenals, tiny little countries who cannot afford them with their populaces in poverty, and they're getting delivered American trucks and very sophisticated military equipment before our own units in the field are delivered the same kind of equipment. And so the dictator who grabs the helm of government in some of these third world countries continues the tiresome exploitation of their people as they have from time immemorial, from the days of Attila the Hun to the Habsburgs to Otto the Great to Constantine, Justinian, and every other great dictator who has ever lived. And still, People believe men, human leaders, hierarchies, oligarchies, triumvirates, juntas, representative democratic forms, communism, fascism, socialism, is somehow the key. The problems a new president is going to face are, let me just tick them off very, very quickly, in spite of Glasnost, in in spite of INF, in spite of a temporary waning of tensions and a lessening of the Cold War and a warm-up between the Soviet Union and the United States, the nuclear arsenals of the big powers are still in place. And we have enough power to obliterate about 20 or 30 worlds. People argue about how many. And we know that they are still there. The proliferation of nuclear weapons and the joining of the so-called nuclear club by about 40 nations, including such irresponsible states as India, South Africa, and many other nations, Population. If we were all the same color, all saluted the same flag, worshipped the same God, spoke the same language, human populations, especially in those nations which can least afford it, witness things that have happened in India, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Bangladesh, southern Yemen, the island of Haiti where people have put dirt in their mouths to stave off the pangs of a shrunken stomach. Can America feed all the little children in all the suffering, squalid nations of the world? 
Can we support every evangelist who wants to go feed the people of Haiti or Nicaragua or somewhere in Uruguay or Peru or some nation in Africa like Upper Naomi or Niger, the Gold Coast? Can we support them all, feed them all, clothe them all, help them all, alleviate every suffering because we're good and decent folk and we want to share what we have? The irony is, believe it or not, people are not dying fast enough. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? In the Western world, he advances in medicine, the gradual knowledge of various methods, not only of cleanliness and hygiene, but also of certain drugs which have all but obliterated some of the old population killers of typhus and smallpox. And of course, when I was a child, the March of Dimes was a very, very well-known and uh, presidentially sponsored campaign to obliterate polio, and it's all but done so. It's almost an unheard of disease today, yet it was a very uh, rampant disease in the 1930s. And so people are living longer. Now that's a problem because we have the social welfare state, and we've got all of the various incredible burdens of all the rest of the workforce in 25 to 44, supporting a large number of people, and they're going to be living to be about 92 or 3. And what are they doing? Sitting there, watching television, playing cards, playing games, reading, enjoying life. But they are not producing. They are not advising. They're put out to farm like the old horse in Kentucky bluegrass who cannot race anymore. And so in our society, the idea is to live as long as you can and enjoy life as long as you can. And the nursing homes and the clinics that dot our land by the thousands, if you really understood, are sometimes the scene of some of the most heartbreaking, heart-rending suffering loneliness, abandonment by one's own children of the second generation, abuse by perverted people who actually are there to so-called so serve those elderly people. If I tried, if I even tried to look into this world, to take the roofs off the homes and the bathrooms and the bedrooms, to look down into the factories and the assembly lines, to hear the shrieks and screams in the hospital rooms across our land, and to assess or to appraise a little tiny top of the iceberg of the problems confronting humankind. And then I were to propose soberly to anyone in this room that I think I've got the solution, that I know how to step into the void here and to solve some of those problems, I would expect you to think that I am either a liar or utterly crazy. Believe it or not, as much as we do not want to accept this fact, the United States of America viewed only in the sense of the microcosm of one nation in the entire global community. And I apply it to the whole world, not just us, not just singling out the United States of America. But America, in the context of the whole world and all the problems confronting humankind, have long since passed the point of no return. There is no human solution. There is no human solution. But I want to go to the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy for a moment and deal with the problem of cause and effect. Almighty God makes promises. Politicians make promises. Are politicians able, as a matter of historical comment, to deliver on their promises? Is God able to deliver on his promises? 
Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are parallel chapters. Deuteronomy is the orations of Moses when he repeats what was stated in Leviticus 26. Chapter 28, verse 1, It shall come to pass, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. In many ways, the United States of America, though we are waning, though we are becoming a third-class state, though we no longer have the power to manipulate, to influence, and to guide the course of world affairs as we once did immediately following World War II. No, our allies don't always go along with us anymore, and we are not number one on high above all nations. Yet in many ways the illusion still exists. And in many ways I would have to say that the man who was going to be inaugurated early next year on the steps of the Capitol building, and some of them I absolutely shudder to think of who it might be, that man actually is stepping into the greatest, singly most important responsibility on the face of the earth. In many ways, that man represents a human being who has the most power of any human being on the face of the earth. I've still got to say that that is true, in spite of growing weakness that I see. All right, God said, if we will do all these things, observe all of his commandments, which ones? Well, the Ten Commandments, as Christ magnified them in the Sermon on the Mount. I will set you on high above all nations on the earth, and all these blessings shall come on thee. And what did I ask at the beginning? What do we want? And what do we don't want? Verse 3, blessed shall you be in the city. Are we blessed in the city? Why, that's a sermon, an article, a book all by itself, isn't it? Just talking about the problems of our big cities. That many of them are bankrupt. Many of them are fetid, squalid collections of asphalt, concrete, wire, steel, junky-looking billboards, houses of prostitution, blighted areas where poor people on welfare live, fetid, seeping, steething hotbeds of crime, of drug abuse, with street people, pimps, addicts, prostitutes, pushers, and I could go on and on and I will forbear. Blessed shall thou be in the city, are we? And blessed shall you be in the field. We could do another couple of hours talking about artificially prepackaged, preserved, uh, preserved food with virtually no food value that is produced from farms that have long been depleted with artificial fertilizers and pesticides, herbicides and fungicides, and then all sorts of additives to give it long shelf life, and we wondered why we get sick and have so much cancer. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. And we could talk about deformities and about the percentage of children born blind, deaf, dumb, missing a limb, born with AIDS, born with gonorrhea, born with syphilis, born with, with genital herpes. We could talk about the more than 50% babies born in the inner urban areas to many of our people in this country who are illegitimate. We could talk about the problems of a Detroit teacher who is one of our ministers to whom young girls come on a regular basis, hitting him up to get them pregnant so they can make more money on the welfare program of the United States that guarantees them for every illegitimate child a bigger welfare check. Yeah, we could talk about these and all these other problems. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, and the flocks of your sheep. Blessed shall be your basket and your store, your reserves, raw materials, minerals, metals, strategic materials, oil. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Eternal shall cause your enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. What did he cause? What did he, ha what did he allow to happen in Vietnam? 
They shall come out against thee one way, and flee before thee seven ways. The Eternal shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and all that you set your hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Eternal thy God giveth thee. We can look at all of these blessings. But then the opposite side of the coin, verse 15. If we don't hearken, we don't listen, we don't obey God's laws, quick comment. Which community, which small town, which large city keeps the Ten Commandments of God? None. We don't need the Bible to tell us there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Oh, there are exceptions. There are a few people in our society who try to live a good life. There are a few people around on the workplace who will not steal your envelopes, paper clips, stamps, use your telephone to make long-distance calls, steal your stationery, steal from the till, steal your blind if they could. There are a few Americans who don't cheat on their income tax. There may be one out of 25 corporate executives and CEOs who got where he is honestly. There may be such a thing as an honest politician. There may be several here and there honest used car dealers. I even know a couple of them in the church. And I believe they don't put the odometer back. And I believe they don't lie to people, but there aren't many like that. You women that go into the garage mechanic and he says, well, it's the Bema hater and the thing that digs and the doof lobby there, and I'll replace that. And then he come up with a bill for $97 and nothing was really wrong with it in the first place. Like the poor old fellow whose wife told me, and he worked for years. He missed a good wrench in the GM place in Tyler. And when he died, she went through his things and there were three drawers in a stand-up cabinet in his garage filled with brand-new spark plugs. Every time he put plugs in somebody else, he just gapped them, sandblasted them, stuck the old ones back in, took the ones in his lunch pail, took them home. He was going to sell them someday, but he died and had to leave them to her. She didn't know what in the world to do with about 600 spark plugs. Now, I know that there are people somewhere. I know that a TV repairman who goes trundling out with that TV to say, well, I've got to take it to the shop to fix it, is going to do the best job he can in as little time as he can for as little money as he can. And you know that too, don't you? And we know we're playing games if we agree that we know that. And so he says, if you do not obey all of God's laws, then these curses will overtake you. And I won't take time to go through them, but it said you'll be cursed in the city, the field, your store, and he just repeats on the opposite side everything he said earlier. But notice what it says a little later on. In verse 36, after talking about all the diseases, the inflammation, the, flea, the fever, the blasting and mildew, the sore bots that cannot be healed, he said, verse 36, the eternal will bring you and your king which you shall set over you into a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will serve other gods, wood and stone, and you shall become an astonishment and a proverb and a byword among all nations, whether the eternal shall lead thee. You shall carry much seed into the field, and shall gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards, and dress them, and shall neither drink of the wine, nor gather of the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your coasts, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olive shall cast his fruit. You shall beget sons and daughters, but you shall not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. All your trees and the fruit of your land shall the locust consume. The stranger that is within thee, I think this is very poignant today, shall get himself up above thee very high, and you shall come down very low. He shall lend to thee. What a poignant prophecy. You shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee, and shall pursue thee, and overtake thee, until thou be destroyed. I want to get to a point. It is very, very important for us to see. John 18, 36, Jesus Christ of Nazareth on trial for his life 
was asked by Pilate whether or not this rumor going around was true. Did he claim to be a king or not? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. That means of this society, this civilization, of our social institutions. His kingdom is not of our educational system. It is not of our military organizations. It is not of our scientific fraternity. It is not of our business community. It is not of our social strata. It is not of our economy. It is not of our religion. His kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Now, most people think it does. The Jews thought it did. Let's turn for a moment to Luke, the fourth chapter. Let me show you something. Here were some people who were really shocked, because I think some of you are about to be, by a statement I'm going to make, a shocking statement. Jesus made the statement. They tried to kill him, and I hope I get off a little lighter than that. But he made the statement. As I said earlier, there are people, and the Jews were that way because these were the religious Jews with whom Jesus came in contact in his own hometown of Nazareth, beginning in about verse 16 of this chapter. He'd been brought up there, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read, and the keeper of the scrolls with a key went and got the very expensive scroll, and he unfolded it to the place where the prophet Isaiah had said a certain thing and began to read. To give you the background, the Jews, remember, thought they were God's folks. They were God's people. This was God's nation. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, their national heroes. Everything God did, he did in and through them. Whatever was happening with God was happening there. On a daily basis, God was aware. God was dealing, and God was working. Like I said earlier, some of the Protestants and they get, get on the radio or the television talk about marvelous things the Lord is doing just now. Now, there are millions of American people who believe that. They honestly believe this is God's world. This is God's country. This is God's time. God is in it. He's here. Why, Jesus is doing this and that. The marvelous things. Honk, if you love Jesus, says the bumper sticker. Beep, beep. There's somebody else. Loves Jesus, loves the Lord. And so people are imbued from the time of childhood with our more than 400 differing, bickering, disagreeing, fighting, squabbling religious denominations that this is God's society, this is God's world. Now, the Khomeini thinks that he is God's society, and we're the great Satan. And, of course, we believe, and I think rightly so, that he is of Satan, the devil, and his religion is satanic. But, be that as it may, many people think this is God's world. God is dealing with it. God is in it. Millions of prayers are made in the United States every single day. Every weekend, probably tens of millions of prayers. Responsive readings, recital of the Lord's Prayer in tens of thousands of church meetings across our land every single weekend. So they're imbued with the notion that God is here and God is working and God is doing and God is aware and God is taking a hand and he's dealing and he's manipulating and he's controlling and he's choosing and he's making decisions, and he's working. And everybody has this idea in their mind that God is out here doing all these things. That's exactly what the Jews thought. They thought that of their nation. Look what Jesus told them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, spiritual meaning in this, captive to their own appetites, captive to Satan the devil and his civilization, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. It had to do with a time element. It had to do with a particular time when an invitation will be made to mankind. And if man will listen and will hear and will respond, if a, if a tone is struck in the human heart that that invitation is accepted, then here and there, on a very rare once-in-a-while occasion, a human being can get in contact with God. He closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he said a great deal more. He preached. He talked. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And then they began to wonder, Well, he can't be anybody because we're not anybody. Isn't that Joseph's son? Don't we know Joseph? Doesn't Joseph know us? Therefore, he's disqualified. If he were a stranger from afar, he could be somebody. But we're such a miserable little community. If he came from around here, he'd nobody. Isn't it amazing how people will demean themselves? That's the dumbest argument I've ever heard. And some churches have tried to use that against my father and me. They say, he got everything he knew from Russell. Seventh-day Adventists say, he used to be one of us absolutely a lie. Not true at all. But why would they demean themselves? What they're saying that as is as a put-down. That means he can't be nobody because he used to be one of us. What's wrong with them? You know, I mean, people don't know what they're saying. They don't know what they're saying. And so these Jews came to Jesus. Well, he can't be anybody. This is Joseph's boy. That's Joseph's little boy. I knew old Joe. He built my shed out there, built my chicken coop. I knew old Joe the carpenter. That's old Joe's boy. And he said, you will surely say unto me this proverb, Position, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, and it's been carried to us from afar, we've heard these tales way off there somewhere. Let's see you produce right here. See you do it right here in front of us. And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. Many widows. And a widow is a lady without support a lady without a breadwinner, a lady without a provider. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, that is a terrible drought, and a great famine was upon the land. How many people were hungry? How many, how many people died? How many people had distended bellies in the advanced stages of malnutrition during that time? How many suffering widows were there? Jesus said there were many. And God sent a prophet. God intervened. God did something. What did he do? How much did he do? On what scale did he do it? There were many widows. There were tens of thousands of people dying, suffering, starving to death. And Jesus said, But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Zidon, up in Syria, the Syrophoenician coastland, not even in Israel, a woman that was a widow, and many lepers. Leprosy is an ugly, hideous disease. A terrible, terrible disease. Disfiguring disease. Your nose drops off. Your chin, your ears turn a ghastly white. Red blotches and blue and purple and white. And your flesh just rots on your body. 
And he said there were many, many lepers in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed. That's what God did. God was doing something. God was working. God sent his prophet, one of the greatest prophets of all time, Elisha. None of them was cleansed save Naaman the Syrian. They in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, stumbling over themselves. He got such a hubbub and such a chaotic melee going that they actually lost sight of him in the confusion. He probably fell down several times. They dragged him out to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built that they might throw him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way and went to Capernaum. You see what this is telling you? Those people believe, like millions of Americans do, this is God's land. God is working here. God's mighty wonders to behold. The Lord is doing this and the Lord is doing that. And I'm here to tell you today, this is not God's world. Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not try to save the world when he came the first time. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has never tried to save the world from then until now. And Jesus Christ is not trying to save the world today. God has turned his back on this world. He is interfering in the most minuscule little way, here and there, once in a while, from time to time. But in any broad general sense, Almighty God is letting this world have enough rope to hang itself. He's letting man govern man according to man's own whims and vanities and ego and jealousy and greed. He is not interfering in government, in science, in industry, in business, in education, or in religion. He's never stopped a war. He's never emptied a hospital. He's never emptied a graveyard. You have just not seen it, and you're not going to see it until it is God's time to intervene in a mighty and a direct and an inescapable way so there will be not the faintest shadow of a doubt in any human being's mind. They won't be telling you. They won't be running up to you and announcing to you, oh, you ought to hear what the Lord is doing because every eye shall see in that time. And there will be no doubt, even as finally at the last plague of the lice, of the mites, of which there were billions that afflicted the Egyptians and Janus and Jambres who had been able to duplicate every miracle that was performed by Moses and Aaron through God's power, finally had to say before Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They could not duplicate it any further. There will come a time when every human being will know this is the finger of God. And that time is not yet. Matthew 24 said, There will be a time of wars and rumors of wars. Be not troubled, the end is not yet. But all these things must come to pass first. And then, he said, certain things are going to occur which are going to prove to us that the end is nigh. In Luke, the 21st chapter, and I'll turn to that right quickly, he said, when you hear of wars and commotions, and we're hearing of that now and have been for a long time, and there will be much worse yet to come. In the Middle East again, believe it or not, the biblical prophecies of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 say that the beautiful, verdant, new, young nation of Israel in the Middle East is to be ravaged and completely destroyed, and that there is yet to be a building. There are very strong indications there will be a temple, a third temple built, and even after it is built and sacrifices are once more commenced inside of Israel, that will yet be destroyed. 
He tells you, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then know the desolation thereof is nigh. And there is to be a literal fulfillment of that just prior to the second coming of Christ. When you hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, verse 9 of Luke 21. These things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes. We've had a little foretaste, a little harbinger of that in California and here and there. Great earthquakes shall be in different places, and famines and pestilences and fearful sights and great signs shall there be from heaven. Here and there in certain areas there have been famines, but not anywhere near like the great ones that are yet ahead. But before all these they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons. Who can quote for me where that occurs today? This is a time of comparative peace. I can get away with preaching the word of God without fear of my life right now today. The time is going to come when bricks will come crashing through the window and where bullets and bombs will be thrown and where people will be accosted in a parking lot and where eventually people will literally be arrested and dragged off for daring to preach the truth of God, for saying that there is no such thing as a trinity, for saying that the Holy Spirit of God is the divine power and the life of God and is always portrayed in the Bible as water, fire, and wind, and for saying that the only triumvirate you know of are Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel, and for showing that the Holy Spirit is what came over Mary, and she was found, quote, to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And it's ridiculous to assume, since Jesus talked so much about the Father, who is clearly a person, an individual of the Godhead. But if the Holy Spirit engendered Jesus, then who was Jesus' Father? But there are many, many, many other proofs that the Trinity, which locks up the Godhead into a triumvirate, is absolutely, absolutely a false doctrine. That duality, two sexes, male and female, two ears, two nostrils, two eyes, two hands, two legs, the two opposite poles of the earth, the two opposite magnetic poles, that duality is everywhere visible through God's great creation, that there are Father and Son. And because God is a spirit, and them that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And my spirit witnesses with his spirit that we are the children of God, that there is the human spirit that can be engendered by God's Holy Spirit. They don't seem to understand that the life of God and the power of God is the Holy Spirit of God, by which the agency through which and by which in a spiritual power, not electrical, not nuclear, you cannot see electricity, you can only see what it does. You cannot see an atom, but you know what is there because we're aware of nuclear power. You cannot see heat, you only feel it. You see flame, but that's not heat. The heat is that which flame gives off as it is in combustion with the wood or whatever it's feeding upon. No, the Spirit of God is not a wraith-like, ghostly, hooded, cloaked specter that lurks in the distance as one of a triumvirate of the Godhead. But the day will come when I will be thrown in jail for preaching that. The day will come when you preach about the weekly Sabbath day, and you will be persecuted for doing so, but that day is not here yet. Jesus shows in the Bible, Revelation 12, verse 9, that Satan the devil deceives the entirety of the world. The devil is called the great fallen archangel, who is there depicted as a dragon, quote, who deceives the whole world, end quote. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is called the God of this world. He is the God of this world. Read my article on Satan's greatest deception. It'll be a shock. Many people don't realize that the figment 
of their imagination, the picture in Baptist Bible bookstores of the aquiline-nosed, petulant-expression, brown-locked young man with a halo and the shepherd's crook and the little lamb in his arm gazing into the distance in an idyllic expression is not the way Jesus Christ looked at all, but may well be a counterfeit antichrist, which actually is more a picture of the way Satan the devil comes to humankind, because your Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, if his ministers appear as the ministers of righteousness, it is no great thing, for Satan himself appears as an angel of light. If Satan ever comes to you, he will appear not as a hooded dragon, not as a, a snaky-looking character with a red body stocking and little horns and a spade beard and a pitchfork in his hand, but as an angel of light. He will appear beautiful. He will appear desirable. He will appear magnetic and attractive. You will want to believe him. That's what the Bible plainly says. That's why I've preached so many sermons on how not to be deceived and written articles on it. Great earthquakes, great fearful signs from heaven. And verse 12, Before all these they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to prisons, being brought, not invited, but dragged, that's in manacles, under arrest, before kings and rulers for my name's sake. That happened in a microcosm in the first century. Paul before Agrippa. Other people like James, the brother of John, who was beheaded. John the Baptist was the first casualty during Jesus' lifetime. Jesus was the next. Then along came James and several of the other original disciples, and Stephen, who was killed when Saul was standing there holding the clothing of those who were sweating to pick up the rocks and stone him to death. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it. Make up your mind in advance, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. If you read the book of Revelation, if you read these Olivet prophecies, do you see a world where, quote, good men of good will, by working together everywhere, will bring about a great ecumenical religious revival, and we will have a wonderful world of peace. Do you, like many millions of Americans, hope to see a president in the White House joining hands with his cabinet and screwing his face up into a prune shape and praying, oh, Lord, help us with the Russians, like many millions of Americans think they're going to see? because they believe that the way to solve the world's problems is through a man, the right man in the White House, and we will solve the problems of our country. Does anybody really believe that? I tell you, it won't happen. It doesn't matter who's elected. It doesn't matter how much he wants to do the right thing. The problems are too large. They're too imponderable, too weighty, too heavy, too enormous, too big too impossible to move, too complex, too technically, intricately dependent upon so many other imponderables around the world, that the man in the White House is going to look at the problems he faces and heave a sigh of almost utter defeatism by the time he's been in the White House for ten days. And you, as a citizen, in six months or another year or two, will look and you will see very, very little that has changed in any manner, shape, or form. Everything will be just about the way it was. 
I'll ask the question, how would Jesus vote? Jesus wouldn't vote at all. Can you tell me Jesus would join one of these political parties? Jesus, who sees the human heart and the human mind, who recognizes every lie when he hears it? Jesus, who read the mind of man, would follow after a Gary Hart? Would follow after a, a Dole or a Jackson or a Bush? Would Jesus have narrow, racist, or self-interest, or vested interest, or would he represent big business or small business? Would he represent the minority or the majority? Jesus, would he take sides? I tell you, on the authority of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't vote at all. Now, should you vote? Well, the chances are you should. The chances are, as the Apostle Paul did, you ought to exercise your franchise, and certainly in a local communal sense, because you have that right and because sometimes to try to stave off evil where other people will ride over you like a steamroller and do things involving your school, involving your children, involving your health, involving your community, involving your streets, your sewage, water and lights, involving other things they want to do from the Public Utilities Commission to the school board, sometimes you need to stand up and your voice needs to be heard. If the Apostle Paul had not used his franchise, he would not have had the opportunity to give the great witness that he did before he died. He would not have been taken to Rome. Some of those books of the Bible would not have been written. We wouldn't have that record to read today. But don't tell me that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has a favorite candidate out here of a Democratic or a Republican candidate for President of the United States, because he is completely aloof from the machinations of mankind. He looks at it and says, Behold, all nations are before him as the drop in a bucket. He counteth them as nothing. Have you not heard it is he, the Eternal, who was from the very beginning? He holds all nations as but nothing in his hand. He has already been elected. The votes are already in. The President of the United States, in our lifetime, in the lifetime of perhaps many, if not most of us in this room, is eventually going to be Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the King. The president or the king of the Soviet Union, of every other nation on the face of the earth, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is coming to rule this world with a rod of iron. And it's a whole different sermon to begin to tell you how criminal justice ought to be handled and how crooks and perverts and bestial, perverted, twisted human beings who will steal children for their own inordinate animalistic lusts so that you can hardly see a television program or a shopping bag or an airport with a picture that says, have you seen these children? Hundreds of thousands every year disappearing from the playgrounds, from the front yard, from their way home from school, with perverts in our society taking children for their own lusts. What do you think ought to be done to them? I know a public hanging would be a macabre, grotesque thing to see, wouldn't it? We don't have the stomach for it. But let me turn in conclusion just two quick scriptures, first of all, the 19th chapter of Revelation, which says what Christ is going to do about it. It says that his eyes were as a flame of fire. It talks about heaven being open and him sitting upon a white horse in verse 11 and 12 of Revelation 19. On his head were many written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. That is his vesture, testimony to the fact that he himself was brutally murdered. A name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, yes, he is going to fight the war to end all wars, and he's going to win it, and he's going to put down every other force. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. 
and out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. That's metaphor for the fact that when he gives a command, it will be forcibly put into effect. It will be obeyed. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Yes, God is angry at mankind. He's angry at perverts. He's angry at so-called homosexuals and sodomites. He's angry at murderers and rapists and arsonists. He's angry at perverted nurses and doctors who would mistreat a poor elderly person. He's angry at some young thug who would rape and beat to death an 87-year-old lady living alone. He hates that kind of thing. And he, for all of our do-gooder mentality and our unwillingness in the United States and our Supreme Court who rules against it and doesn't want to see the death sentence and the ultimate penalty for crime, he, God, recognizes that some human minds are so perverted they simply ought to be killed. But only he has the righteousness and the absolute beautiful, holy power to be able to do such a thing bereft of personal vindictiveness. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Yes, Christ is going to come, and when he gets here, people are going to die. And everybody Christ puts to death is going to richly, richly deserve it. In the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, is perhaps one of the most hopeful parts of all of the Bible. It says, You have not received the spirit of bondage, reading in verse 15, again, to fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship or of adoption, because God makes us his children when we repent brokenheartedly, whereby we cry, Abba, or Father. When we pray, it says, Call him Father, your Father in heaven. The Spirit, his Holy Spirit, itself bears witness with our spirit because of the, of the concepts he gives us, of the truth he opens to our mind, of the values he gives us, of what we really want for people, the justice, the mercy, the love, and the care that we want to see these people receiving, a child who is safe from his school to his front door, an elderly person who is loved by his own children and grandchildren, who come to visit him on a daily basis, who is taken into the bosom of his family, not put out in a cold, barren nursing home. Love is what God wants. The Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you love your children? Does God love his kids, his children? If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation... Now, this is talking about the whole world. It's talking about the starving babies of Ethiopia Eritrea. It's talking about those poor people crying because of the machetes that are busy down in Mozambique and the terrible bloodletting when they tried to vote a democratic government into Haiti talking about all the suffering that you see on nightly television. The earnest expectation of the creation, not creature, creation is the preferred word according to the originals and it's in the margin. The earnest expectation, think of those words for a minute. We talk continually about these elections, and an election has to do with earnest expectations. It has to do with so-called legitimate aspirations. 
That's what elections are all about. Elections are built on hope, are they not? Elections are because we hope for a better society. We hope for a better deal. We hope for a better, a better retirement, a better old age. We hope for better health and welfare benefits. We hope for a higher minimum wage. We hope for a good job and a good salary. We hope for all these things that we want. Heightened expectations. That's what elections are all about. The earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, they don't know that because mankind will not admit that that truly is the only solution. For the creation was made subject to uselessness, emptiness, a pursuit after wind, vanity, nothingness, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope, because God is working out a plan, and it's on a time sequence. It is programmed. It has to do with a certain program, that things are going to work according to God's plan. Because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, and that really in a microcosm says everything about all the problems of mankind, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, and doesn't this portray our evening television news, groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also. Yes, we do. How many times have I not been able to finish a meal watching television because of something I saw? My wife and I have both, on an occasion, a rare occasion, I'm not that demonstrable, sat before our television sets and seen some of the things they portray of brutality and viciousness and just cry because what some people are able to do to other people. It is unbelievable. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, because God is only calling out of first fruits. He's calling an elite, special, separate group ahead of time. And he's only calling a few. Many are called, and few are chosen. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, in other words, the redemption of our body, salvation, the second coming of Christ. For we are saved by hope. But what hope that is seen is not hope. What a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? And as I said at the beginning, we don't see, really, if we're honest about it, dramatic interventions of God. Somebody might tell us a story that they were buoyed up and they think the Lord did it. Fine, I hope they're right. Maybe they are on an occasion. Most of the time they're not. They're just deluded. They're just deceived. I have seen maybe two or three miracles, and you'd have to question me on that, certainly one involving my wife's healing many, many years ago, 30 years ago. But so few in my lifetime comparatively. My brother was smashed up in an automobile accident. We prayed our hearts out, and he died. My mother of an intestinal disorder, and we prayed and fasted and prayed around the table, every evangelist, every so-called righteous person in the church, for months, and she died. And what a different church it would have been, what a different elderly age my father would have had if she'd stayed alive. But she died. I'm a practical person. I have two deaf sons. I've seen God's miracles, and I've seen God tell me the answer is no. I have prayed and heard nothing but silence 
No, I don't stand before audiences in the United States and say the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that because I have never heard God's voice audibly in my life and neither has anyone else on this good green planet Earth. The Bible says no man has heard God's voice or seen God at any time. That's what the Bible says. Any human being that tells you the Lord spoke to me is a liar. He's not telling you the truth. This is not God's world, and God is not in it. He has sent his word. Are you able to handle it? Do I get dragged out to the parking lot? Christ told them, a group of people who believed it was God's world, that God sent two prophets at different times. One of them went to a Gentile woman, and the other one went to a Gentile king, and didn't even come to all of the people who were suffering during that time because that wasn't what God had in mind for that age. He was letting them reap the reward of their own faults, values, and concepts of their own sins. And today, I tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ, the one way in which God is actively intervening in this world is through his work, through the work of preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God as a witness and a warning and he is not actively intervening in any other major way today. He is not staying the hands of the Mashels or the Qaddafis or the Khomeinis. He's not stopping or preventing war. He's not preventing crime. No, he is not. God is witnessing. He's pleading all day long have I held out my hands to a rebellious people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, prayed Christ. How often would I have gathered thee under my wings like a mother hen would her chicks, but you would not, therefore your house is left unto you desolate. God is still holding out today, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you will walk in the way of God's laws, blessings. If you turn away and you resent God's laws, you break his Sabbath, you will not obey God. You will not love God as he says. You will not love your neighbor as he commands, as yourself. You won't be a good, gentle, kind, decent, loving, honest person of integrity, a law-abiding, good and gentle spirit, but you're going to be avaricious, lustful, vanity-ridden, egotistical, jealous, carnal. You're going to want to get, want to rip and rape and take and pillage and pollute. Well, then God says the automatic result of that, all the evil that you see around you. No, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is coming to this earth, and when he does, he is going to solve the world's problems. And short of that time, there will be no solution. The only solution to the problems confronting humankind today is the second coming of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the visible, shocking intervention of Almighty God.